0: So uh, we are uh, struggling as most courts are to keep up with our uh, work in terms of court proceedings but uh, minimize risk to all parties concerned and that's a constant challenge that is informed by uh, the numbers that we get in our various courthouses.
1: This episode, Locked Up During Lockdown, will be split into two parts. Part one focuses on the federal courts in Canada and America, day-to-day changes from the perspective of two judges, and the public's willingness to serve on a jury trial, including the surprising benefits of conducting trials online. Welcome to part one. Welcome to the Six Feet Apart Podcast. I am your co host, Joelle, along with Lucy. <laughs> Check out our Instagram at six underscore feet underscore apart and our Twitter at six apart. And for more inquiries, email us at six feet apart podcast at gmail.com six as in six I X. Unfortunately, it's only Lucy and I because Cassandra and Ahmed drink way too much vodka. After the conspiracy theory episode, when they heard it could be a possible cure, they are in a facility recuperating.
2: It's all thanks to the Belarusian leader. Dang. But we'll try to entertain you guys yes. as best we can.
1: <laughs> yes, this is the final formal episode. We plan to release a more casual and reflective episode in the next couple of weeks in which we all reflect on this podcast project and the future of our education being our lives lives. next week we will
2: be deciding what we're doing with the rest of our lives so tune in
1: yes um yes today we will be talking about how COVID-19 has been affecting the legal and prison systems as well as incarcerated individuals
2: So yeah, like the medical and educational sectors, which we talked about in previous episodes, the legal and criminal justice sector is another vital element of society, which didn't have the option to just stop functioning during this time. Uh, So throughout the episode, you will be hearing clips from our interviews with two judges, one from the U.S. and one from Canada as well as an advocate for formerly incarcerated individuals to get all of their perspectives on how their work has changed and what can be expected in the future.
1: Yeah. So a little background on this, according to the Marshall project in the U S there are 108,045 COVID cases reported among prisoners, 81,900 have recovered and 928 have passed away. For Canada, as of July 16th, 600 inmates and 229 employers have contracted COVID-19 and three have passed away. We'll get into this throughout the episode about how this is impacting all aspects of the legal sector, but it's just important to recognize how we will be dealing with this matter.
2: Right. So there's obviously an incredible loss of human life right now, and lots of incarcerated individuals are at risk because of COVID-19. So we wanted to make sure we're examining this issue from both the legal side and the criminal justice side, and really just the human side. Um, so first, we'll be starting on the legal side. And to before we delve into our interviews with the judges, I just wanted to give a bit of a brief background information on the differences between the court systems in the U.S. and Canada. So we'll be solely examining the federal court system within this episode. So for the Federal Court of Canada, um, under their lockdown period, the system went into a suspension period, which meant that basically the due dates for court proceedings and for government documents all of that went on pause starting in April and not really ending until around now a little bit earlier in some provinces that were better with covid than others but basically there anything that has been that was due before the pandemic hit is now due like in the fall so they have been doing things remotely which we will talk about but Really, it's kind of just been on pause for trial dates and hearing dates and all of that. The US, In the U.S., each uh, region of the federal court got to decide about whether or not it would close down, stay open, what proceedings it would continue to have. Um, so work didn't really stop in these courts. Um, the buildings might have closed, but they kept having online hearings some online trials, and now they're working on having in-person trials again, which we will touch on in a little bit. So one of the big differences that oh my gosh, Lucy, they're coming for us. Do you hear them? Yeah. <laughs> Woo! So enjoy that lovely background music. Um, okay. A big difference between the U.S. and the Canadian federal court system is that in the U.S., the federal judges will hear criminal cases on top of civil cases. So like intellectual property cases, immigration cases, the U.S. federal courts will hear all of that. In Canada, the federal court does not hear criminal cases. It only hears things about intellectual property, maritime law, federal provincial disputes, and civil cases related to terrorism. So the federal judge that we talked to, Judge Manson, Justice Manson, he will not be able to speak to jury trials and all of the concerns from COVID uh, related to that. But Judge Lynn, the American judge that we will talk to, she has had to figure out how to have criminal cases during this time, which has been very difficult. So yeah, that's pretty much all you need to know about that. So the first judge that we talked to is Judge Barbara Lynn. She is a chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas in Dallas. So I asked her to tell me about big changes that she's seeing because of COVID-19, and here's what she had to say.
0: Well, let me begin with uh, the obvious. Uh, We are faced with a very serious health crisis, and we want to keep the participants in the judicial process in our various courts safe, but we also want to perform our Uh, duties to serve the interests of justice. And so the challenge is in trying to do both of those things at the same time. So we have been able to proceed with some judicial proceedings remotely uh, by uh, video, uh, principally for uh, defendants in criminal cases who are in custody, Now, for civil cases, um, I have had uh, a number of hearings uh, remotely. These are generally oral arguments. So uh, we are uh, struggling, as most courts are, to keep up with our uh, work in terms of court proceedings, but uh, minimize risk to all parties concerned, and that's a constant challenge that is informed by uh, the numbers that we get in our various courthouses.
2: So in addition to this, she also mentioned that they had to shut down their in-court proceedings until June. Um, They limited which days of the week in-person proceedings can happen. They put in place intense social distancing and health procedures when they actually brought in jurors, which we'll dive into more deeply in a bit. So then the Canadian justice that we got to talk to is Justice Michael D. Manson of the Federal Court of Canada, who is currently working in British Columbia. Um, And here's what he had to say about the changes because of COVID-19.
3: I actually finished three trials uh, as COVID locked everything down. So I was in Toronto for two months, effectively, and had three trial decisions I had to do by June. So I literally was flying back from Toronto to Vancouver on March 14th, March 15th, everything shut down. So I was working on my trial decisions from the hearings I'd had earlier in the year, as most of our judges were, they were working on decisions that they had to get out. And and we were also trying to figure out how we were going to proceed during this COVID era. And, And that meant how do we now move into the more digital age How do we make effective use of, and we use Zoom in in our federal court. So how do we all learn how to use it effectively? How do we deal with the parties? How do we deal with counsel? Um, And so there was a a lot of prep in terms of figuring out how to work uh, virtually uh, as opposed to in person. That was probably from March 15th through till I would say sometime in May. Um, And then slowly we started to have virtual hearings Uh, And in the meantime, uh, judges are, as you said, reading briefs, looking ahead to what they're going to have to do whenever we get back on track. Um, So it was a kind of a mix, preparing for what's going to come down the road as soon as we were able to do so. And secondly, uh, dealing with all the decisions we had to get out, which um, were already there for us
2: to deal with. I think it's been like for everyone, we're kind of taking on this dual role of trying to function as normally as we can while also having to think about what's to come and how do we stay safe from COVID, but how do we progress? And I think when you put that in the context of the judicial sector, these people really can't stop what they were doing before. And so it's like we put this dual role responsibility on judges and the court system to figure out how do we still dispel justice, but while also keeping everyone safe. So I think it's very complicated and I definitely give props to these judges for trying to figure that out.
1: Yeah, especially in a lot of professions where you can't stop your job. It's a vital part of our society it's really hard to evaluate that and still go about the same system because we want reform but how do we reform reform it when we have to keep those proceedings up in a like a time of a crisis so i definitely applaud everyone in the legal sector and everybody who's still working during covid19
2: right flashback to the essential workers episode yeah Um, So another big issue that people are noticing and talking about within the legal sector is the issue of backlog in which cases that had to be put on pause uh, during this time are now piling up and judges are trying to figure out which to prioritize, how to get everyone access to justice in as quick a manner as possible um, so here's what Justice Manson has to say about that. Uh,
3: yes. I mean, there's, there's no question that, uh, there has been some backlog. It's not been that bad because as I say, we embraced virtual hearings, uh, almost from the get-go and anything urgent was dealt with at the time, regardless of, of COVID and anything that was less urgent, they were postponed. So, we are going to see some uh, catching up over the fall period, particularly this year. We
1: spoke to a chief empowerment officer at Thrive named Kim Yassir, and Thrive is a place where they help people who were formerly imprisoned reintegrate back into society. And she also mentions that this backlog, this backlog, was a huge problem for people awaiting release. And this is what she has to say about that.
4: And then I think the other thing around the criminal legal system and COVID is that so many things have been delayed. So people's lives are kind of on hold. And for some people that's been good. That's given them time to kind of prove that they're able to be in the community and to um, um, not be a risk. Uh, uh, A lot of times courts are looking at looking for, a track record of people living well in community and, and not causing harm. Um, so for some people that's been good. Um, but for others it's been, um, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're stuck in in jail, um, for a time that they're not, they don't need to be in. Um, maybe, maybe they're waiting results of, of, um, of a case and, um, just kind of living with anxiety about whether they're going to be sent to, sent to prison for the first time or for, um, you know, a repeat time. So I think the holdup in our courts has been, is a, is something that for better, or for worse needs to, that needs to help, needs to be addressed because people's lives are on hold in that process.
1: And we know that there was a lot of backlog before in the court system due to not being enough resources or not enough people who are actually in those positions to file paperwork. But again, COVID-19 has definitely exacerbated everything wrong with society in every single way. And I think that's, I don't think that's being too overdramatic because it's definitely been true, especially over the course of this podcast series. And basically thrive supports adults transitioning from incarceration and they really look at the role of reentry so how do they help empower the returning of citizens while at the same time engaging the community members so that the whole that the individual as a whole is more resilient to the impacts of incarceration and we'll hear a little bit more about that throughout the episode and at the end where we talk about the impact on the future of the legal sector
2: Yeah, I think it's really important, which we will address later, but we'd have to keep in mind that these are human lives that are being dealt with. So when we think about backlog, it's the backlog of someone's livelihood. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: As well as this, the public's willingness to serve on jury trials have been impacted due to COVID-19. In Canada, in June, a national survey found that 18% of Canadians were very willing to
2: to go on a jury trial. Twenty three
1: percent were somewhat willing. Once the emergency lifts, overall, rather than serve on jury trials, people were more willing to donate blood or volunteer for community organization. Defense lawyers and jury advocates have suggested increasing juror pay to make serving a more viable option and, uh, and in Ontario they get paid nothing for the first 10 days $40 per day after that and 100 a day if the trial goes longer than 50 days in the US in June empirical juries sur- survey the, imp- the empirical juries survey of 1500 people 1500 people found that 75% were nervous about attending a trial because of COVID-19. 46% said they would actively attempt to avoid jury duty. 30% said they would ask to be excused. And their incentive in the U.S. is $50 a day for jurors, and they can receive up to $60 a day after serving more than 10 days, or after serving 10 days, and reimbursed for transportation and parking fees And they'll also cover meals and travel fields if necessary. And that sometimes is not given until the trial is over. So Yeah.
2: I think it's just, it's really interesting, especially now to think about kind of how little jurors are paid. Um, And it's really important that people, especially during COVID, when money is so important for a lot of people to be able to, to survive the quarantine time and lots of people are unemployed and losing their jobs um in order to get a representative jury of people from all aspects of society we need to make sure we're reimbursing people for their time accordingly yeah.
1: i think in any other time i don't know i do people usually get paid to work a jury a jury or to be on a jury because i've never had to go in for dirty duty jury duty before
2: yeah so this is normal like these numbers are from normal times um usually it doesn't get like they don't get paid until after the fact because of like the processing times for the checks and like you don't know how long they're going to be there so really it's not like you're getting paid you're not getting handed money every day
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like there's a lot of like jury duty is something that adults say especially in the sitcoms where they're trying to get out of jury duty (laughs) they do all this ridiculous stuff just to make themselves it's always a plot
2: point yeah every show
1: yeah like i I remember i was watching um new girl and jess was trying to get out of jury duty Mm -hmm. to like go on a date or something and then like the whole like i guess it was kind of funny because people are like oh this is our moral principles. You should be honored to be on a jury. And there are some people who just don't care at all. Yeah, I, d- I never had to experience that before. So that's news to me.
2: Yeah, I think, like, personally, I see no issue with going to serve on a jury. But, like, when you put it in the context of COVID-19, of course, there's all the health concerns. Um, and... I'd be terrified if someone was like, okay, you got to come into this federal building. You have to be surrounded by a lot of people and who knows how long you're going to be there because you don't know how long you're going to have to serve for. Um, But of course, for people who also need to support their families, there's the concern of will you be able to take time off of work and still be able to make it through those one to two weeks that you're on a trial. Mm -hmm. So lots of complications, but that's why it's been really difficult for judges to try to figure out how to hold in-person jury trials. So in the U S for all criminal proceedings, the defendant has the option to do like right now, they have the option to do an in-person or an online trial. Um, However, they always have the right to have a jury of their peers. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really important to try to maintain that status um, in order to have like the fair process of law. And so judge Lynn is actually the first judge to hold a federal jury trial under COVID precautions in the United States. And so she has a unique perspective on doing that process. And here is her talking about that. We
0: have been mindful of, trying to protect our our jurors from undue exposure and excusing people in advance who are at heightened COVID risk. And once we have had jurors here, we've done everything we could to uh, minimize uh, their risk by exercising social distancing and uh, requiring masks and... Uh, sometimes reorienting the courtroom so that people are further apart than usual. Uh, But that is challenging. We had to uh, use courtrooms as deliberation rooms and not use our jury boxes and broadcast trials elsewhere uh, so that we are observing adequate distance.
2: So to expand on what Judge Lynn just said, I also looked through the handbook that she made for all other judges um, as they go about trying to have in-person trials. And some of the things I thought were really interesting is they put up plexiglass walls, which separated the judge from the jurors. Um, They had the jurors sitting in the gallery where the audience would normally sit at a trial rather than having them inside the juror box, which if you've seen a normal courtroom. The jury box is pretty small. Um, They had witnesses testifying from a seat in the jury box, which was surrounded by plexiglass. Um, And the witnesses themselves, when they were delivering their testimonies, they would take off their masks so that the jury could see their face. And that's like a very interesting tension um, about having in-person trials is you want to keep everyone safe and have the masks and have the PPE, but a big part of trials and jury trials is being able to assess the credibility of witnesses, of lawyers, of defendants. And so they've been trying to come up with these creative ways for people to still be able to see each other's faces um, while also staying safe. And so for the jurors, they have, um, What's it called? They have face shields um, during jury selection rather than a mask which covers their mouth and nose so that the judge and the lawyers can assess how they're reacting to questions. Um, Because I don't know about you, when I look at someone talking in a mask, it's very hard to see, like, read their emotions. Yeah. Um, So you could be flat out lying and, like, your face would show that. But if you can't see someone's face, it's very hard.
1: It's definitely a lot. It's definitely, well, a lot warranted because during the age of COVID-19, we need to be sure that we're protecting ourselves. Plexiglass walls are very expensive. I think that's what Ahmed said.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: I'm going to summon him for this. (laughs) Yeah. So he he definitely mentioned that it was really expensive to do that and whether they'd be able to keep it up throughout the coming months of COVID-19. And then my commentary would be that, okay everything's clean, ensured cleanliness. But it's hard to imagine a world before this where nothing was being kept at that standard. So now we're seeing public transportation, schools, we're all like they're all doing our part to stay clean, wiping down tables properly and using different disinfectants. But what were you doing before? You were just letting us walk around, like around these what like you weren't keeping anything clean to its to its standard just because there wasn't
2: a pandemic that's gross yeah it's It's disturbing to think about how many places we trade germs with people Mm -hmm. yeah and now like someone has to actually sit down and like trace that out and make sure everything's clean but yeah it'd probably be a good idea to keep up some of these measures in the future um Another thing I was going to say, oh, so yeah, about the costs, um, Judge Lynn talks about how they had to use three courtrooms to hold this one trial because they had one courtroom where there was the jury and the judge and the witnesses, one courtroom that was for the public because all trials are open to the public, but they couldn't have the public sitting in the same courtroom. So they had one courtroom just for the public to watch the trial on a screen. And then I don't know what the third trial is, or what the third courtroom was used for. I imagine it was something to do with juror selection or some other process. But yeah, they had to have all these people get involved and use all these resources. So it's definitely a question of, can we do this in the future? Um, And so then on the face shields uh, issue, I asked her about that. And this is what she had to say. So I know you use the plastic face shields, but did that prove to be a good substitute for the real thing of seeing someone's face?
0: Well, I think it was better than a mask Mm -hmm. uh, and not as good as nothing um, over someone's face, but that was impractical. That's one advantage to a remote jury selection, and I tried to convince the lawyers to do the jury selection remotely, because I thought they would have a better look at the jury that way, but they didn't agree, and in a criminal case, I would not uh, require that. Um, the room we used was long and narrow, uh, so I don't think it was perfect. I think they were able to see the jurors better than they would with a mask, even those in the back. But it still was a distance and there was some
2: glare. And then just another quote from the handbook is that this trial showed that jury trials are possible even amidst the coronavirus pandemic. And the wheels of justice can continue to turn. But the tangible and intangible costs are very high and require scheduling negotiations between judges so that the court systems are not overburdened. And I thought that was just a pretty sentence.
1: Yeah, like the wheels yeah. of justice is so
2: poetic. Mm-hmm. I see you, Judge Lynn. Um, and then Justice Manson, so he doesn't have jury trials, but this is what he's heard about provincial courts that do.
3: My understanding is I don't believe they're doing them online. Uh, they are doing them in person. They certainly have started in British Columbia, um, where, again, we opened up earlier than than perhaps Ontario or Quebec But my understanding is is that most of the provincial courts, if it's jury trials, will be doing them in person. All our courts have, over this period, from March 15th till now, have been putting in all the safeguards for for people. We've got dividers. uh, Everyone wears masks unless they're talking in court. Uh, All the registry staff are in masks. We all have sanitizers. So, yeah, everything you would do, as we're instructed to do publicly, we've put in place in the courtrooms with spatial distancing and and all those good things.
2: Although he doesn't have jury trials, he has learned how to run remote hearings more efficiently through technology.
3: So if you don't have the right technology, um, things go sideways and all of a sudden you have you're losing people, you're losing what's going on, you have to restart So what we, I think the biggest takeaway was, okay, a week before, at least a few days before any hearing, do a dry run, make sure everyone's comfortable, whoever is going to be appearing in court, make sure that they've got the right technology, Uh, they're going to be able to show documents, they're going to be able to do whatever they need to do to make their case on both sides. And so we do a dry run uh, before all our hearings. And that's really worked out a lot of the kinks. So now uh, there's a FileMaker Pro, it's called, uh, which is a way to get all your documents electronically in order. And then you can actually share the screen and pin you looking at me, me looking at you and having a document up front on the screen as well. And so, it, it again, uh, knowing how to do all that before you actually try and do a real hearing has, has made a world of difference.
1: Yeah. And like, there was speculation for about Zoom in the beginning of the not uh i guess at the start of the pandemic it was more it was more known that zoom was the go-to for all these platforms where in-person connection or in-person interactions are mandatory but there was a lot of speculation about how zoom may not be as secure as we thought it would be in terms of getting people's like social information how easy it is to access these meetings, and I think as people use Zoom more, they're learning about the different nuances and different ways to secure that platform, whether it's using a VPN or to just secure the password more often, or just to like pe- placing people in a holding until an admin can let them into the session, and just all these different things. Zoom etiquette, essentially, mm-hmm. I think that's made a world of difference in terms of our efficiency, and it's good to know that they're implementing this in the court system. But again, it's definitely about the interactions and seeing people's seeing how people seeing people, seeing people people essentially. So it's, I hope that technology doesn't take away our humanity in that way through the legal system.
2: Shout out to, Antisocial, social Social Society, our last episode. Yeah.
1: Wow. But, I love how, like, we're
2: just bringing all the connections back. Yeah. All the connections, all the
1: synthesis. Yeah, check out our last episode if you want to hear more about that.
2: Yes. But it is crazy. Like, you talk about the social interactions, and then it's like, okay, what if those social interactions have these huge implications mm-hmm. for crime and lawsuits and everything?
1: Yeah.
2: And it's like, it's all up to zoom working properly. Like if something glitches while you're delivering your arguments, like you might lose your case, like the risks are just that much higher. So there are obviously a lot of complications with having online court proceedings, in-person court proceedings, but I wanted to know if there were any surprising benefits that the judges experienced during this time. And judge Lynn spoke about how they're on zoom or over the phone it turns out to be a less intimidating setting for defendants. So this is what she has to say.
0: When I am sentencing defendants who are in custody and they are talking to me remotely, it has been my impression that they are somewhat more comfortable speaking to me Mm. because the setting is less intimidating. They're speaking to a television set um, Mm or a computer, not in a large, uh, intimidating courtroom with a judge elevated well above them, uh, very high ceilings, big room that is very intimidating to a criminal defendant. So I have sensed uh, greater ease uh, in their communicating with me.
2: Judge Lynn also talks about how clients don't have to spend as much money sending lawyers across the country right now.
0: So I think we may have fewer in-court proceedings uh, that are non evidentiary that are more like appellate arguments than we did before, because I think clients appreciate uh, the cost savings that that involves.
2: And then Justice Manson talks about how the federal court of Canada really has taken to zoom and also the benefits of not having to travel.
3: Um, Our experience has been one zoom has worked quite well. Um, As soon as we all got familiar with it, um, we had a a, a protocol that we would follow to make sure it was being used effectively involving, you know, confidentiality, privacy, um, the integrity of evidence being given all those issues we had to make sure that we were dealing with uh, appropriately. And as a result of using Zoom or, or virtual hearings, of course, we were cutting down all that travel that we do coast to coast. So expense, uh, time, uh, experts who may live in the United States or Europe or, or Asia um, who couldn't come to Canada. We learned how to deal with them effectively by by being there virtually. And we we're doing it on. So cost time
2: another benefit it could be argued whether or not this is a benefit or a good thing but a lot of civil cases are settling more often right now than usual or they're being moved to a later date and this is judge lynn talking about her experience with that
0: mm-hmm. and i went through all of my civil cases and i have not a single case that i can slaughter into. Oh wow! And that's because a lot of my civil cases either have settled, or they've already requested that I move them to next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my sense is that a higher percentage of my cases have settled than is usual. But I can't prove that scientifically. Right. Uh, but if if it isn't that more settled they've moved because more of those cases involve lawyers who are traveling, and travel is an additional challenge in these times of course.
2: Well, I think, like, just to explain several cases a little bit more, um, they're usually about big lawsuits between companies for copyright infringements and all this stuff, and they involve lots of expensive lawyers and lots of money. And so I think like most things, COVID has kind of made people step back and be like, okay, what is most important right now? Like, if we can put off this trial or if we can just figure it out amongst ourselves without having an expensive trial, then that's better. And I think that's really interesting. And I wonder if that's a trend that will continue once it becomes safe again to travel or not. And then... Finally, Justice Manson talks about the benefits of being able to focus on who is speaking during a Zoom hearing.
3: Um, You know, you get to focus on whatever witnesses are being cross-examined or examined, and um, as long as you've set in the right protocols, uh, it it works very well.
1: Yeah, as well as this, we interviewed Kim Yasir, and she talks about how online alternatives provide a way to make it more efficient and more aware of people's time, especially when you are doing hearings to release people who were incarcerated. And this is what she has to say about that.
4: We Occasionally our members do need to go to court either because there was some sort of um, probation violation or they need to, um, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why people would go to court. Um, but now, um, so many courts are offering their, um, or, or are conducting, um, their work via zoom remotely, um, which I think, um, there might be some difficulties with, but for us, it's been much more respectful of people's time and energy. So, um, it takes, you know, people aren't having to ask off work for as much time They aren't um, experiencing as many, like, um, a continuance isn't such a big deal. If you've ever been part of a court process, they draw on forever. Um, I think that could be something, if the courts do make some more permanent changes in that direction and making it possible for people to join virtually, I think that could really help a lot of, like, the economic stress that also um, aligns with those processes, just having to pay the cost to get there and the um, parking and all of that.
1: Easier because it's cost effective. You don't have to find transportation and it's much easier on the on the day of the release.
2: Right. Yeah. I think we can all relate to that. There's just not, you don't have to move, but as we'll talk about in the next part, uh, there are definite downsides for incarcerated individuals.
1: Yeah, tune in to part two for the effects on incarcerated individuals and the impact on the future of the legal sector. This is the end of part one. Dun-dun-dun. We're using that for the (laughs) outro.